I hope you're ready for a journey through the concept of Imago Dei. Imago Dei is Latin for image of God. And last week we explored the significance of our origin story and we're gonna be walking through Genesis at chunks at a time to really think about our origins. And last week we explored the significance of how we, we started out. We're rooted in the story in Genesis. And unlike the secular, secular stories around us, we are here because of God. In the beginning, God spoke creation into existence. We're not an accident. You're not an accident. So for that reason, every person has value and purpose. And that's what we're gonna unpack today. Um, today, we're gonna embark on a journey through the Imago Dei, diving into the image of God. And as we navigate the tension between the secular narratives of the world and God's original design, we're gonna come around this question, why are we here? What's our purpose? Who am I? What am I all about? How do I define myself? What is my ultimate purpose? And we're gonna find that sort of, we're gonna unpack that around this Imago Dei, the image of God in us. But before we dive into the deep waters of theology, let's lighten the mood a bit. Um, can you imagine if God had a bloopers reel at creation? <laughs> like the giraffe, I mean, there had to be a joke about the giraffe and the elephant and the platypus. I mean, what is that like? The mixture of like a duck and a beaver. I mean, God created some things like the mosquito. What was he thinking? <laughs> like there had to be some, some things like, what, what, are we, what are we doing right now? Um, picture God's first conversation about creating humans. I can almost hear the angels kind of off in the distance sort of whispering among themselves and like, should we insert ourselves here? Like, are you sure, God? They might need a lot of guidance. I mean, these humans, they're gonna need a lot of divine intervention. And can I get an amen on that? <laughs> yeah, we do. We need so much divine intervention. What was God thinking when he created us? Today we'll get to the true meaning uh, embedded in the Imago Dei, like I said. And secularism tells us that we have the ability to create our own destiny, our own purpose. We're gonna figure this out. We're gonna roll up our sleeves and we're gonna figure out who we are on our own. We're gonna wake up in the morning. We're gonna do these seven things before we do anything else, including drinking a big glass of water and we're gonna solve our own problems. That's how we come about it. But in this message, we'll learn that God designed humanity with a clear meaning, not self-created, but given by God alone. Uh, you can turn in your Bibles to Genesis or pull it up on your Bible app, Genesis chapter one. And we're gonna look at three verses, three familiar verses for many that talk about this Imago Dei in us. This is during the sixth day of creation and after God creates all the animals, we have this special account of how humanity is created beginning in verse 26 of so Genesis 1, chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind 
in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. We have these terms, image of God and likeness right there in verse 26. There's a general understanding that the Hebrew words for image of God and likeness, they, they work together to convey this idea that humanity, unlike anything else, it shares in the nature and the character of God. I was watching a little reel over the weekend and I saw this guy throwing a basketball to a grizzly bear back and forth. And I was mesmerized. Like who teaches a grizzly bear to throw a basketball back and forth? When we see an animal act like a human, we're just like, wow. But we are so different than a grizzly bear. We are made in God's likeness, in his image. The image of God in the Hebrew is tzalem Elohim. And it suggests a resemblance a reflection. It's kind of like holding up a mirror. I, w- I went to my powder room at my house and uh, I grabbed my mirror. Yeah, look at you. You guys are all straightening up. Like you didn't think that you were going to have to look at yourself during this sermon. But looking at God at some level is, is like looking into a resemblance, uh, an image. But how do you look at the likeness of God? God, if we begin to look at him, his glory is like something that we have to shield ourselves from. And he doesn't take on like the form of humanity, at least that creation he didn't. And yet we're made in his likeness. And it runs much deeper maybe than what we see in the mirror, but somehow we reflect his image and this likeness, the second Hebrew word, Duluth, it's, it's really complements the idea of the image of God, emphasizing that there's a correspondence. You are like God. In some way, you're kind of like God. I mean, with that in mind, you can imagine, you know, how we get it all wrong. If, if we're kind of like God, if we're pretty close to God, but entirely not God, how that can be challenging to figure out, well, what does that mean? Uh, Think of it this way, the image of God is like that mirror. And as we look upon God in all his glory, something's reflected back. Your reflection, your image, it looks like God. But this reflection goes beyond your physical appearance. It gets into part of who you are, your essence. And when we look into the likeness of God, into that perfect mirror, we see the most beautiful version of ourselves. 
because we see what he sees. And together at creation, these terms emphasize the special relationship uh, that's characterized between human beings and God that's different from the rest of creation. The cool thing that I think about the account is right from the start in verse 26, something different happens than the rest of the creation story up until that point. God begins creating humanity around a conversation that he is having. He says, let us make mankind in our image. And we know from scripture, the very first point that's stated is that the spirit is hovering over the waters, differentiating, you know, the light and the darkness and the the chaos that's there. And we see that the Holy Spirit is present at creation. And we know from the Gospel of John chapter 1, specifically it says that Jesus was there at creation and that nothing was created that was, that is, that was made apart from the word, the logos, Jesus. So we know from Scripture that the full fullness of who God is in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit is there at creation. And that's where we get this language. You know, we're trying to put this whole thing into words. And God is trying to put it into words for us. He says that he has a conversation. Let's make man in our image. Let's make humankind like us. It's kind of mind-blowing, really. If you, I mean, if you step back and think about, it's time to create something using our pattern the pattern of God. But God didn't need a mirror. It's out of the Trinity, the depths of what the Trinity is that we reflect his image as Father, Son, and Spirit. We're gonna use four words to really describe the image of God, not like necessarily what it is, but how we live it out. And so the image of God can be described around these four words, essence, relationship, worship and purpose. Our essence, it's kind of what is essential about you. What's the most essential thing about you is that you are a soul being. You have a soul, a spirit. You understand the spiritual life. You have a longing for the spiritual life, even though you've been placed in a physical world. You are soul being with individual uniqueness and common purpose. Each one of you can have a conversation with your creator that's unique. And yet God placed us in this earth with a common uh, purpose to represent him. And there's something essential, the most essential thing about us is that we're made in God's image. More than kind of the things we figure out along the way, our gifts and all these cool things that we do and figure out, they may reflect our image and they may reflect the image of God. But the most essential thing about you is that you're kind of like God. And that's how creation was, was um, humanity was created. And so tomorrow we celebrate Martin Luther King Jr. Day. We celebrate the life and work of Dr. Martin Luther King. And, you know, as we think about his life and our uniqueness, uh, each one of us can speak back to God in this personal way, and, and he, in a very personal way, 
called our nation to some important changes. In February, on February 28th in 1954, he spoke a sermon titled, Rediscovering Lost Values. This is in the 50s, Rediscovering Lost Values. And in the sermon, he starts to unpack the Imago Dei. I have the quote from the sermon here that he spoke to this congregation in Detroit. He says, the whole concept of the Imago Dei is the idea that all men have something within them that God injected. Not that they have substantial unity with God, but that every man has a capacity to have fellowship with God. And this gives him uniqueness. It gives him worth. It gives him dignity. And we must never forget this as a nation. There are not gradations in the image of God. We will know one day that God made us to live together as brothers and to respect the dignity and worth of every man. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And he, he ended up laying down his life, right? For that goal and for that purpose. Because every individual may not be in perfect union with God, but they have the capacity for fellowship with God because they're made in his, his image. And any, any enemy that we have, our best friend down to our worst enemy, still has the image of God in their life. And that leads us into this invitation that we see at creation into the garden, that we were invited into relationship Upon creation, there's a significant moment. God speaks for the first time in a different way. He speaks to his creation. So God speaks the world into existence. Then he, he has this conversation. And then he speaks to his creation for the first time in relationship. He, the first thing that God does, you can see it in verse 28, he blesses his, his, his um, humanity. He blesses and he speaks to them. And this points to that relationship. To fully understand how God spoke and inter interacted with Adam and Eve, we have to peek into Genesis 2 and 3. We'll get to that, kind of unpack those at a really deep level in subsequent weeks. But in Genesis chapter 2 and, and 3, we have the specific story of Adam and Eve and how it all played out. That at Adam's creation, God breathed his breath into him. Another picture of the image of God in us. And he placed him in a garden. And even after Adam and Eve took of the forbidden fruit, God came looking for them in the cool of the day, in the cool of the garden. Adam, where are you? Even after Adam and Eve's sin or departure from, from kind of the best version of the story, God was still seeking them. Adam, where are you? And he's seeking him and looking for him. And that's what this relationship is. To fully understand the image of God is to understand that God is inviting us into the cool of the garden and into relationship. Now, how do we figure this all out? Um, this relationship leads us to respond to the presence of God. Adam hid after sin, right? But initially there was this relationship where there was an invitation 
in the garden and we were invited to worship. And that's our response, is to respond to the presence of God in worship, like we sang this morning. Something in humanity responded to the presence of God like nothing else in all of creation. And out of this relationship flows the marvelous dynamic of worship. We often think of prayer as conversation with God. Prayer and worship, I think, go hand in hand. We think of prayer as a conversation. But we, we think of it on our terms, like, today I'm going to pray. Like, how many of you said a prayer today? I know a few people have been praying, even for me. I, I asked a couple brothers to pray for me this morning. So I know a few of you have prayed, and many of you probably have had a thought that's like a prayer. We think of prayer as something that we initiate. Like, we say, dear God, you know, hey, my kids are going up to the Poconos and it's snowing. Can you get them there safely? You know, we have these requests and these desires. And we say, dear God, I worship you, but here's what I'm thinking. What are you thinking? You know, we, we put ourselves in the place of initiation. But worship and even prayer, it's totally different. We are responding. God is the first speaker. We speak second, even in the creation story. God speaks, he blesses, and then we respond in relationship and worship. And this is what guides us into our ultimate purpose, is a life of worship and relationship with him. That's the only way we're going to figure it out. But what is our purpose? Purpose in this life is that we are his ambassadors. We represent God to the world. Out of this relationship, humanity has a mandate to represent God to the rest of creation. Think of it this way, to all of creation, we are the thing, I'll say thing, the, we are the most like God in all the world to the rest of creation. It's hard to wrap your mind around that. You know, in a humble way, we, we don't want to put ourselves in the same category as, as God. And that's a good thing, that humility. But there's another side of it, which is to the world, we are the thing most like God. And that's how the world experiences us. At times, that's how other people experience us. They, they see God in us and they see him active. And it's out of this relationship and this purpose that God instructs. He says, subdue the earth, rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and the livestock, the wild animals on the ground. Rule over this vast land, explore to the edges, travel deeply with people, and discover, explore, fill it up, be fruitful. This exploring spirit is rooted in our purpose to uh, this original mission to rule the earth. But why would God ask us to rule the earth? That this part of the Imago Dei, the, this part of the image of God is not, at least to me, it's not super obvious. I can see why he put us here, you know, to have a great time in relationship with him, to worship, to be in relationship with one another. But why would he say, Rule over the sea, the depths of the sea. Before you are going to build a boat, you, are in, you should have dominion over the whole sea. Before, you know, they make this earth 
documentary where we can watch like the depths of the ocean and the amazingness of all these creatures we don't even know about. That's where you, you should have domain. That's where you should rule. Before you can invent an airplane, you need to have dom dominion in the skies. Like what does that even mean? What did God mean by that? Why did he do that? Why did he give us a realm, a place to live a little bit like him? We were made to have dominion in this appropriate space in the fullness of the globe. And to me, this is the core of the image of the likeness of God in us being lived out. It's an opportunity to represent God as, as him, his ambassador, to work alongside God in union and partnership. If you've ever raised a child or supervised someone in an internship or taught someone how to use a power tool or do a new craft, um, you know how important it is that as soon as possible, get them to try it. Get them to try it. Have you ever been playing like a card game and you're explaining the directions and you're like, well, this card should get three piles and that, this, then this is the discard pile and it's like, this makes no sense. And then you're like, let's just play around. After we play the game, it's gonna all make sense. Like, let's just try it. Let's, let's. And that's what God is doing in this realm. He's saying, let them try it. Let them try it. And let's see how this relationship goes forward when they have a responsibility in this space. Uh, when my children were little, they, I remember they put on a pageant for mom and dad. And my youngest, Mercy, who's in her teens now, she was just old enough to speak in a cute little squeaky voice. And the four kids went up to the attic and they planned the pageant for hours. Um, they came downstairs to get our clothes and grab some household items. And they had props and they had scenes. They had different sections of the pageant. They made little tickets and set up a row of two chairs I thought was cool. And as a father, it's one of my favorite memories. But I'll never forget something I noticed during the pageant. Each child got caught up in the details that seemed less important to me. They would get mad if someone messed up a line. I thought it was better when they messed up their lines. But they'd get mad at each other. They'd fidget with their costumes. Their costumes didn't fit. I thought it was cute that their costume didn't fit. They would get frustrated if they didn't get their own line right, as if getting it right determined my enjoyment of the performance. And afterward, they were talking about how they did a terrible job, they messed up, they, they could have done this better. And in that moment, I saw as a father sees, these little ones, a little bit in my likeness and mom's likeness, they had a heart to please mom and dad. And yet they were caught up in sort of how they didn't measure up. They, they couldn't quite get it right. And maybe the pageant picture can unlock something for you like it did for me uh, in that day. Um, we were cre created to rule this realm in God's power and to enjoy a relationship with him. He wasn't looking for perfection. He didn't expect us to be perfect. He didn't expect us to be God. He expected us to be like him, and we are like him. But he gave us responsibility. 
And we know from scripture that we've all kind of gone our own way. Sin has messed this whole thing up. We've departed from, you know, his good purpose, his good work in our life. How has sin and what has sin done to the Imago Dei? I think there's two great lies of modern secularism and, and the way the enemy works at us that start to distort the Imago Dei. Um, it's not that it goes away in our life, it's just really tarnished and broken and distorted in sin in such a way that we start to question it. Today, I mean, there's so many of us that have no clue who we are. We're struggling with our identity. We don't know why we're here. And this leads us into this great lie that we're starting to see in culture around us. It's just that you are worthless. Lie number one is that you are worthless. In subtle and sometimes obvious ways, modern secularism leads us down a path that attacks a person's worth. We're gonna unpack this more, how in the next two weeks, how we're made as both male and female and that there's dignity in every life. But there's this attack on our identity that you don't matter, you, you're not important, your life has no point, you can't get your lines right, you're not quite as good as what everybody else is doing. You don't fit in like everyone else seems to fit in. Remember the movie Snow White? In Snow White, the mirror holds significant symbolic importance. Look at that, it's like a dark picture. I almost was like, I don't know if I wanna put that picture up here. The magic mirror, often personified as the evil queen's mirror, is a tool that she uses to seek affirmation of her beauty. The mirror reflects not only physical appearance, but also the queen's inner vanity and inner security. You can see it's getting in to this identity. And it highlights the queen's obsession with external beauty and her desire for validation. And the mirror serves as this powerful metaphor for the destructive impact of vanity and the consequences of defining one's worth solely based on outward appearance or horizontal comparison. We can no longer answer this question, who am I? Because we are primarily living in this horizontal, broken, sin-filled world. We see this lie like I'm not worth anything. We see this lie take shape in the prodigal parable. In the Gospel of Luke chapter 15, a father had two sons and the younger one asked him for his share of the inheritance in advance. The younger son went to a distant country and he squandered everything, all his wealth in reckless living. And soon the severe famine broke out and the son, he, had, he found himself eating like pig food, the pods that pigs eat. And he thought in himself, like as he kind of returned, he's like, I gotta get back to my father's farm, my father's house. Maybe I'll just be good enough to be a slave there or a servant in his kingdom. So he goes back and to his surprise, his son's surprise, instead of condemnation, he receives a welcome, open arm reception back onto the farm, back into the kingdom, back into the household. And a celebration is thrown for him. He, he can't believe it. He says to his father, I've done wrong. I've squandered everything. Just let me be a servant in your household. 
the father disregards his statement entirely. He says, you are my son. You were lost. Now you're found. You're back home. And he's received with this great celebration. And when we turn from sin, it's this challenging thing because we're still caught up in it. And we, we're like, okay, well, now I have to be good enough to get back into God's kingdom. And that's not how it works. The second lie is kind of like it. It's not that you're worth less. It's that you're worth more. You're worth the most. This is what I think a lot of our culture is getting caught up in. It's like the older son in the prodigal story. He's resentful when he learns that his brother is back home and there's a party. He won't even go into the house. He's so bitter. He stays outside. And he, he feels that his loyalty, his hard work, he, it should have been rewarded. And he's upset that his father is celebrating the return of this wayward brother. The brother should be a servant. He shouldn't be acting like a, a brother or a son. And this older son, like he refuses out of his bitterness, his bitter heart, because he feels like he's worth more than his younger brother because of what he's done. And his father comes out and says, this is all yours. Everything I have is yours. What's yours is mine. What's mine is yours. And so we see this tendency in the world today. But people believe they are the main point. They believe that in subtle ways that we're, we're better than what, what the people around us are doing. Secularism and sin lead us to both extremes. We can feel worthless like, oh, we... We turn that assignment in late. We turn it in the gate. We, we can't get to school on time. We, we forgot about that important meeting at work. And we just feel like, man, you know, I'm terrible. I'm like, I'm not doing this well. Or we start to say, you know what, I've been working hard. Maybe I should, you know, take it easy a little bit. I'm pretty good. I'm, I'm doing really good. God should feel pretty good about where I am. And both of these lies, they they get at this idea that we can work our way back into the perfect image of who God wants us to be. But something happens through this restoration called the gospel that turns this whole thing around in a really profound, I mean, you could not make this story up. Restoring the image through the gospel. Through a surprising reversal of roles Jesus steps into our likeness to heal and restore the distorted image of God in us. Listen to the way that Paul describes it to the Philippian church in Philippians chapter 2. He's, Paul's telling the church, you guys need to be more like Jesus. You should have his mindset. Don't think of yourselves better than other people. Be humble. And he, he goes on to describe the life of Jesus. He says, who... Being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be held onto. Instead, he made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is the great reversal of the gospel, what we would call the good news. That Jesus takes on our image. We're made in his likeness, he takes on our likeness. 
and he, he lives it out perfectly in visible form as the word made flesh and he puts it on display. He doesn't shy away from the suffering. He perseveres, his character is there and his hope is there. And he goes to the cross and he's raised over sin and death, kind of reversing the role of what sin and death is doing to all of us. And so we need to define ourselves around that gospel. And as we return to him and as we repent of our sins and the brokenness that's in us, that's still, you know, something that we get caught up in. So how do we navigate that? We need to define ourselves as beloved by God and we need to live from that identity. You know, we often get beat up in the world and quickly our worth, our purpose, our identity and self-worth, they get attacked. Have you ever talked to someone emerging from a, a, like a brutal divorce? It's, it's hard, you know, we've, we've walked with a few friends that have had to kind of navigate that in their life and it's, it's complicated. That's what I would say, like anyone that I've kind of walked alongside, it's so complicated and it's hard. Have you ever walked and seen someone emerge from a brutal divorce? Is their sense of security intact when they come out of that? Do they have a strong sense of self-worth on the other side of that? Do they still feel like a beloved child or does God only love them in their goodness? Or even more daunting, does he love them less in their brokenness? You can kind of see, you can take any scenario that we would go through that would be suffering or perseverance or hardship or things not working out like we hoped. And you can kind of see the subtle ways that we give into those lies. I'm not good enough now for God because I, I did this wrong thing. But that's not how God invites us back. The gospel restores our image and it's still all fully true. And he comes out and he says, you are still part of my kingdom and you still have a role and a purpose in this work. There's a book called Abba's Child. It's one of my favorites. And it, it really gets at this idea. How do you resolve the image of God in the Christian life in the midst of brokenness and sin? which so things aren't quite worked out yet. And he explores the theme of our identity. And where does that come from? Where does our self-worth in the context of Christian faith, when all these lies keep coming at us? There's a quote from the book that I like. And I think it gets to the heart of it. He says, the heart of it is this, to make the Lord and his immense love for you constitutive of your personal worth. Define yourself radically as one beloved by God. God's love for you and his choice of you constitute your worth. Accept that and let it become the most important thing in your life. Define yourself radically as one beloved by God. Not because it's like your self-derived way that you're gonna define yourself, but because that's how God defines you. That's how he sees you. And sin distorts that relationship. It mars that relationship and it separates us from true, healthy relationship with God. 
So someone who has not followed Jesus as their Lord and Savior, they still carry the image of God, but they're not in healthy relationship with God. But their good works is not going to restore that image. It's only surrendering and submitting to the work of Jesus who kind of steps into that image, that likeness, and turns the whole thing back around to the way it should be. And so as we think about, well, how do we do this? How do we live it out? The restored imago Dei, the restored image of God, it's still around these four words. Your essence, who you are essentially, your relationship with God and with others, your worship of him. It's how you reflect his likeness and your purpose with others and how you still make him known as an ambassador. We know from scripture that we are still his ambassadors, making Christ known to the world. I thought about, well, how do we apply this? And uh, the first application, it's like the worst idea ever, but I'm going to still share it. I was like, we should just all take our phones. We should just like all walk to the Brandywine, down to the Brandywine Creek and just chuck our phones into the creek. (laughs) Because this phone, it's like sending us images all the time. Sending us, some are not the worst, but some of them are really bad. And and then I thought, well, that's really not the best application because... Some of us, number one, don't even own our phones, so monetarily not the best idea. We would not be able to know where to go on Monday. We wouldn't know how to get there. We wouldn't know what we were doing this week. We wouldn't know how to call each other. We wouldn't even know how to get a hold of each other. And, you know, we can't throw all these phones in the Brandywine Creek. I don't, think, I don't even think it would make action news if we did it. Maybe it would. But that, that's not a realistic application, right? But maybe if you think about, if the phone is sort of tearing down how you view yourself in light of who God is and and his image in you, maybe when you come home, you just put it in a box and you check it before you go to bed. Maybe make sure nobody was in trouble um, and then put it back in the box or something. I don't know. So I would say maybe an application is thinking about how the screens and you use them in your life. At some point, they're a necessity in our jobs, in the way that we communicate, even the way we read the Bible now. The Bible app is being used all over the world, which is awesome. So that's not, you know, realistic to get rid of that screen. But what is that screen telling you? That's a lot of the source of the lies that we receive. So putting it in its place, putting it in, in the right box is an application. Another application could be journal your thoughts. Um, when, when you write on like a notepad and you write things out, number one, your hand gets all cramped because you're not used to writing. Um, but something happens. You start to connect things in your heart, in your person, in a different way than you're like typing or, you know what I mean? So journal. And when you journal, take time for personal reflection. Consider the secular narratives that are coming at you personally. Journal your thoughts and your emotions and bring them before God in prayer. Write out a prayer and then write out a scripture that redefines and recorrects some of the things that you've been journaling about. Another um, practical application could be uh, counseling and support. If you're on the far sides of those extremes, like idolatry, like I'm the most important or I'm the least important thing in the world, that's not true, you know. You need to come back to the right understanding of that. And that, that requires counseling at times. That requires support. 
We have um, resources for counseling, Stephen Ministry, other counselors we can connect you with. And we also have Broken Beginnings Ministry, and we have support groups like Grief Share, all kinds of things. And, you know, maybe you could come to that lunch and, and get surrounded by small group community. The, the fourth um, application is living out Imago Day in your relationships. Live out the Imago Day in your relationships. Embrace with humility um, the need to actively serve others. Look at the picture of Jesus, how he put the image of God on display in the form of a man and model your life after his and then take action. Take action in your realm, in your circle. And as we close, um, you know, I want to invite the, the band back forth, uh, back up here. And, and um, I just want to really encourage you to take time to figure out where you are with the image of God in your own life. And um, I'm going to invite Jaden. I have a, a, a guy here that's um, written a, a closing prayer for us around the image of God. So Jaden's going to close us in prayer, and then I'll have a couple more words. Lord, I pray that we accept Imago Day in our hearts as well in our spiritual life. Help us reflect on Imago Day in everything we do. Would it also be in your consideration that you shall not let us be deceived by the lies that can distort our viewing of Imago Day? as well or as we shall rely on the fact that we were created in your image in jesus name i pray amen amen thank you brother